And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Yes, you are. And guten tag, Herr Stefan Bloor. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Oh, well, that's fantastic to hear. Today, we will be talking about teams such as Real Madrid, Liverpool, Bayern Munich, PSG, uh, Porto, Chelsea, Man City, Dortmund, and I think that's all the teams that we will be talking about. It's the Champions League, or it was, before you were listening to this, and we'll be reviewing those things that happened in that particular tournament. Very exciting as we edge towards the critical, the, the crucial bit at the end, the bit everyone wants to see. So that's going to be fun. Um, you can subscribe to The Athletic UK right now for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Did you know that? 40%. That's We're talking huge numbers, yeah? Huge numbers off, off, good numbers off. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, that's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And you'll get a bit of a flavour in today's episode as to why you should do that. Uh, it's uh, very useful for me when I'm uh, planning the podcast, thanks to the people whose work I read at The Athletic. Right, well, there we go. That's all now uh, from the intro, and I will leave you in the, uh, the warm hands and the very, very cool embrace of the Champions League. Okay, let's begin with uh, Real Madrid 3 won Liverpool. It was an interesting game from uh, Tuesday evening. And uh, Vinicius Jr. apparently doubled his career Champions League goals in one day. Or so says Dermot Corrigan of The Athletic, and he was right to say that. Uh, great performance. Do we like Vinicius Seb? Well, previously we liked parts of his game. We like his ability to run at the Don't talk for me. Okay, I, or what else, but I could have been, I could have been talking for Alex as well. Not necessarily all three of us at the same That's time. That's true. I'm sorry. Carry on talking for me. Okay. We like parts of his game. I think what was interesting about this performance was it was very complete. And so the areas in which Vinicius usually frustrates, which is his finishing, which that statistic alludes to, he was very, very good, very, very efficient, very clinical, and mm. really the difference. I know that um, this wasn't a great Liverpool performance and Real Madrid was superior in a lot of ways, but... One of the reasons why the scoreline looks as it does now heading into the second leg is because, yeah, Vinicius was unusually clinical. And it was nice to see because he's obviously such a gifted player. And, uh, yeah, I like him and he's growing on me. How about that? He's growing on you. That's interesting. Do you yeah, know what? Yeah, yeah. I, do, I do think that. So I'm glad that you did speak for me in that okay. regard. Um, do we expect Vinicius? I mean, I think the thing, whenever I see a young uh player a tricky winger a player with skill uh, join Real Madrid's forward lines I assume that they will eventually be the best player in the world that's obviously not always true but with uh, with Vinicius where, where should I be placing him in my sort of uh, mental ranking I don't think he's ever going to be the best player in the world I think in actual fact I, I think I prefer Rodrigo who is a uh, who will probably play off the other side but another Brazilian wide player who um, a lot is expected of I think with Vinicius, the difficulty is that the first time everybody or most people became aware of him was when Real Madrid to pay, agreed to pay an enormous amount of money for a teenager, which obviously made much of the world recoil with one of those, oh, fucking hell, the game's gone kind of um, reactions, because mm. I think he was either 15 or 16 when they, they agreed to that transfer. So that's been his identity for a really long time, and he's going to be struggling to live up to that reputation. I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna have a kind of, should we say, a sort of a Frank Ribery type career, whereby he is a right. um, a solid citizen within that second band of elite players. Uh, but he nearly wins a Ballon d'Or once. 
he he has maybe a really good two years where in his sort of early 20s where people say oh my goodness he's actually a really really good player and you know that kind of career I don't think he's ever going to uh, alter the dimensions of the game yes please Um, another thing to say about Real Madrid in this game is that they've had they have a huge number of missing players but the missing players were big players obviously uh, Ed Nazar we expect him to miss every Real Madrid game but uh, Danny Carvajal uh, Sergio Ramos and Rafael Varane all missing uh, they still managed to win 3-1 and also a start for Asensio who, who got a goal too uh, Seb you mentioned that this uh, this game it's, it's the first time this season that you've watched them in the Champions League where Real Madrid haven't felt like they've been plodding through it you know maybe they're sniffing the final now yeah unusually I, I've watched a lot of Real Madrid in in both the Champions League and um, in domestic Spanish football, and they've really bored me, which is not something you associate with Real Madrid. Mm, you you think okay, the defending might not always be great, but it will be fun going forward. And actually, for probably about a year now, at least in, in in my memory, it's been quite dull, quite stale. And this was really interesting. I thought that um, I went in the game like you, looking at the kind of absentees and and probably thinking off the back of that Liverpool performance against Arsenal that. Liverpool get something. In actual fact, the Real Madrid attack operated really nicely. We've talked about Vinicius. I thought the central the center of midfield worked really nicely. I thought that Modric and Kroos gave the kind of performance you could have expected of those players five years ago, both in the sense of how busy they were in different areas of the pitch, but also the range of distribution. Like people remember, obviously, the um, the Tony Kroos pass for uh, the first goal of the game, Vinicius's goal. Uh, but there are all kinds of other little moments where he changed the point of attack, where he sped up the game, slowed it down, and basically just exerted this control that, I don't know, up until this point, at least um, in the games that I've seen, hasn't really been there or has been there in a very boring way in a kind of, right, well, we're we're 2-0 up against, um, you know, some, some sort of mid to, to lower La Liga fodder. and um, The plodding. The plodding, basically, the kind of the, yeah, this the we'll, we'll take our lead and then we'll pass the ball around a little bit and there'll never be much pace and we'll stay in third gear all the way, for, you know, for the entire 90 minutes. This was very different. It was very, very impressive. Plodding is a great word, isn't it? I, it's yeah, really, absolutely. really descriptive. Uh, and I feel like for walking, I wish I could think of more now, but I feel trudging. like for walking, like dawdling or trudging or meandering, there are so many different descriptive words to describe the different ways in which people walk or move. Plodding is a great word. Uh, anyway, um, Alex, Michael Cox wrote a really interesting uh, piece for The Athletic about Madrid's tactical performance. Seb mentioned there uh, the, a couple of members of the midfield, uh, Casemiro as the third. Uh, and Michael Cox describes this sort of strange inversion of at least what we would expect to see. I also like how he began it by sort of describing, you know, uh, the, the the popular idea about uh, Zidane, something we've talked about before as a manager who doesn't really either use or require much tactical energy uh, in, or hasn't done in pre- previous years because of, you know, the list of superstars at his disposal. It's not quite the case now. And so he's having to be a little bit more inventive. And it looks like we can we see it in this game, didn't we? Yeah, there's, there's a degree to which that he's mischaracterized. I think one of the things that, that has happened with Real Madrid and that people have remarked on previously is that while the tactical setup at the beginning of games may not be that interesting, and that is partly because, and here's another walking word for you, Madrid can stroll through most of their mm. fixtures. Thank you. Walking words. <laughs> what Zidane has always been quite good at, and I think this probably stems from his ability as a player, is making tactical changes at half time. So uh, the sort of almost imperceptible things like adjusting defensive lines or angling passes towards slightly different areas of the pitch. And, and Zidane is good at that kind of tweaking. And I think what we saw here was him doing that from the outset. So clearly the the targeting of, of certain parts of the pitch, that kind of channel either to the left or the right of Trent Alexander-Arnold, trying to not only expose his defensive vulnerability, but also uh, it's an effective way of pinning him back as as arguably Liverpool's most creative player in, in passing terms from deep. And it, and it was very astute. I mean, Casemiro's... Uh, has always been quite an energetic player. His ability to get forwards, I think, is perhaps slightly overstated. I mean, of the five goals that he scored this season, four have been 
from set pieces. So I, I don't think there's necessarily quite the, you know, he's he's not bursting forwards into the box with regularity, but by pushing up and screening higher and shuttling higher and allowing those other two slightly less defensive responsibility, they can kind of sit in the pocket and play those passes forwards without having to worry quite so much about the the midfield line moving up as a unit in order to engage a press. Um, and I think that sort of tweak, which has been ongoing during the season, because I, you know, we've we've looked at Madrid's poorest issues in midfield previously, and the only other time I've watched them in the Champions League was against Shakhtar Donetsk in both of those games, and they just their midfield was wide open. Um, and so I think this has been a very sensible shift uh, that has allowed them greater solidity, the ability to press the ball higher up the pitch. Um, and that's aided actually by Vinicius. He's very, very good at, at pressing and, and tying up those wide areas as well. So yeah, Madrid are, are kind of slowly but surely accelerating up, I think, a little bit. One more thing on the Madrid midfield, Seb. Um, you have written down in our notes here that uh, Modric and Kroos communicate in English when they're playing together which is interesting isn't it yeah they seem to and i i just i'm, I'm trying to learn a, a new language at the moment and my wife is a native german speaker and my wife's family will obviously um speak german and when they ask me things or when i'm speaking to them in german i have to stop and think about what i'm saying it's not it's not um reflexive at the moment so can you imagine if you were in a football team and you were communicating with your teammates in not one but two second languages because obviously yeah um, Tony I can is German, because... is Croatian. It's incredible. Yeah, but it is incredible. I don't want to take anything away from them, but at the same time, if you if you were doing that, it'd be like the equivalent of you in your house uh, with your your in laws and your wife. Instead of asking you, "Would you like some sugar in your tea?" They just shout "sugar" at you in German. <laughs> And you would probably get that pretty quickly. It's not like they're sort of conducting a performance of a thesis or something, is it? What do they, how many words do you think they've got that they actually shout? How many? How what? Here's a good question: What is the breadth of the vocab vocabulary in terms of like professional football? Because when I played football as a child, it was um, you know either someone was was uh, telling me to f off because <laughs> I was doing something wrong, or or someone was saying, line it, or man on. And those were the only things that anyone ever really said. I assume people are saying more things, or maybe they're not. Well, I, I think it'd be, if you're a goalkeeper, I think it'd be quite easy because you've got, you know, push up or, you yeah. know, near post or away or put it out, whatever. If you're a midfielder, I think, and I was trying to listen to as much of that conversation as possible. It wasn't just the, the one word. It was a kind of... Well, you know how Modric and Kroos play. There's a lot of kind of navigation and, you know, instructions about how the ball should be circulated. And one is always telling the other who's free, who's available. So, yeah, I, I take your point. You probably don't need many more than a, maybe 100 words at best. But yeah. I just felt that knowing when to apply them. And also, when, you, when you're talking a second language, you always have that split second, or in my case, like about 10 seconds, <laughs> where you have to think about what you're about to say. And, oh, Christ, is that the right verb? Does mm. that conjugate properly? You know, what's yeah. the gender of that noun? You know, like, um, and so I can't do that when I'm watching football on TV on the sofa. So yes. I probably wouldn't be able to do it in the middle of a Champions League game in a, in a midfield. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that was Real Madrid. There was another team involved in this game. And that, of course was one Liverpool. Uh, now, there's one main talking point we'd like to discuss here. We can discuss Liverpool more broadly afterwards. Uh, but I'll begin with a quote from Jurgen Klopp, uh, who explained an hour before kickoff to uh, to the press corps. He said, I couldn't avoid him anymore with all the training performances I'd seen. Uh, and of course, uh, Jurgen Klopp was referring to Naby Keita, who made a surprise start alongside Fabinho and uh, Wijnaldum, uh, with Thiago dropping to the bench. And it did not pay off. Naby Keita was taken off after 42 minutes with Liverpool already 2-0 down. And uh, I was reading James Pearce's piece on The Athletic last night where he uh, called his inclusion the biggest mistake in a night of errors. Uh, I did not watch this game, Seb. What happened? Well, I don't think anything more severe than the game just completely passed him by and any opportunity he had to influence it, he didn't take which is actually a quite a severely bad performance, I guess, when you put it in those yes. terms. But 
I don't feel like I'm able to judge Naby Keita fairly because I had all of these expectations when he arrived. I convinced myself for a long time that, you know, he was only ever another 90 minutes away from adjusting properly and getting into the rhythm of the Premier League or this Liverpool team. And yeah. it just hasn't happened. And sometimes you sometimes you can be tricked by a player's abilities. He was very much pitched as a, it's going to sound a little bit stupid now, but to people that hadn't seen him, a lot of people compared him to uh, Andres Iniesta in a way. Um, just mm. in the way that he held the ball and the way he released it and yeah, other attributes. And obviously that he wasn't exactly what Iniesta was. But I think that, was, that wasn't wholly unfair just in terms of kind of the, the scale of he's talent that he had. Beautiful player. Really beautiful player. And he's been a crushing disappointment. And this felt like the low point. This felt, I don't want to say like the end, but it feels like a long way back from a moment like that, which people are going to remember for a very long time. Mm. 42 minutes in a Champions League game against Real Madrid that's that's a that's a substitution you only make if you haven't got a choice well to focus a little bit on what James Pierce was saying too um, I mean his piece after after the event was was titled something and you know an evening of errors and this was the biggest one and uh, the scripture there obviously refers to Klopp's decision to to include him which you know obviously seems um seems a little harsh to me maybe but at the same time when we are discussing Klopp at the moment. We cannot discuss him without ignoring the pressure which is on him at the moment as a result of the way that Liverpool have... Um, what could I say? How they have uh, scurried through the season. No, that doesn't work. How they have uh, uh, slid. Meandered. They've slid through the season. No, Meandered suggests a bit more of a relaxation. I think they've slid through the season. Um, maybe Stumble. they've uh, Maybe they've edged through it, you know toddled a little bit but uh, the point I'm making is that um, there is pressure on Klopp in a way that there wasn't last year these sorts of uh, decisions are the kind that can either have, you know uh, bring a manager great praise and um, bring him accolades about knowing his squad better than anybody else and uh, being able to understand a player's psychological uh, psychological position uh, or they can make you look a bit stupid and uh, Thiago, was, Thiago was actually really good in the last round um, and you know, it was one of the players who controlled both of those uh, prior games. So it's it's it was a quite a big decision to make, and it clearly didn't pay off. Um, does that does that add to the way that we're thinking about Klopp at the moment? It must be difficult to be Klopp right now. Yes, it must it must be difficult because you know the the culmination of last season. They could legitimately say they were the best club football side in the world, having won various competitions over the span of, of two years. And I think, obviously, the issues that they've had at centre-back have been a significant problem. But as we discussed in a video before, one of the major knock-on effects of that was the midfield balance. And when Liverpool are at their best, it's because there's this kind of harmonisation between the three parts of the team and everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And it feels like midfield is the area where Klopp has tried and failed most. Um, you know, obviously, stand-in centre-backs, you know, sometimes they do well, sometimes they don't, and that's fine, and they're clearly inferior players. But even if you go back, you know, last season, the season before, these experiments to try and add dynamism to Liverpool's midfield, so with people like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain um, deploying Wijnaldum in a more aggressive role, the 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 use of Cater when he's been fit, and Thiago. It feels like this is the bit that Klopp has been trying to sort out on and off for a good few seasons now and isn't getting it right. And I suppose when the front three is so good and works so well together when it's on song and the, the back five was kind of pretty well established prior to those injuries, midfield was the bit that could give Liverpool either more tactical aggression going forwards particularly into that right half space area or give them more of a solid platform and it, it is the bit that you would tinker with but that tinkering hasn't been successful and I think that is an odd indictment actually of of Klopp's inability to to add finesse to that area of the pitch I don't think that means he's under significant pressure or anything but yeah he's not he's not been getting it right Okay, uh, one last thing on Liverpool, Seb. Um, they will, of course, be back at Anfield for the second leg. Uh, they have their away goal, but uh, they would have to win 2-0 or by more, I suppose. Uh, is there any way back for them, You know, given that they'll be at home 
at a place where they would ordinarily sachet or, or swagger or strut? Well, you'd be a little bit naive to discount Liverpool from mounting a big comeback against the Spanish side at Anfield because there's obviously quite a recent precedent for that. The difference here, Joe, I think is that at the moment, going to Anfield is just another game of football. Whereas previously, you go to Anfield, you concede an early goal, and all of a sudden it, it feels like the walls are closing in on you a little bit as a visiting player. Um, even as a visiting fan sometimes, actually, because it's it's such a, such a vibrant atmosphere there. Um, that's not going to be the case this time. Also, I, 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 it, it's a funny thing to say, do you see Liverpool scoring three goals against this Real Madrid team? I, it just maybe it, they only need two, though. Maybe, but I would back Real Madrid to score. I mean, if yeah. on, on, in, unless you know Nathaniel Phillips or um, Kabak suddenly turns into a kind of you know suddenly suddenly progresses to a level which at the moment they haven't shown themselves capable of. They're kind of seven out of ten defenders, and I think um, both have done pretty well recently, actually. But they're just not at a level where you can say you're going to play against Karim Benzema with a player like Vinicius running off him and um, Marco Asensio, um, you know, sort of drifting into little areas and, and causing problems in the box. Can you trust that back two against those players? At the moment, I don't think so. I think they're going to score. And so you're going to need three goals, I think, at least. Well, Madrid will be on the prowl. No doubt about that. Uh, we will be back after this to discuss Bayern and PSG. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hmm, a rare loss for Bayern. But they weren't without their chances in this game as expected 60% possession but here's some uh, mega stats 31 goal attempts which is insane 12 shots on goal 10 blocked shots 9 shots off goal <laughs> that's a lot of shots 15 corners it wasn't the one-sided affair that uh, these stats sound like they might describe but Bayern did really lack a uh, clinical edge or that clinical edge that we so associate them with didn't they Seb they did I mean I, I don't I don't think the stats do flatter them. I think they they had <laughs> they had almost complete control of the game, apart from when they gave away the ball when they just looked incredibly vulnerable. It was very very weird. But when and you I, say complete control, you mean they had I, the I know, ball? I, I know right? how it sounds because they never had control of the game. But this is the thing: like they they have control in that superficial sense, Joe. Like they they they're playing a lot of their football in the opposition's final third. They are um you know they dominate possession. Um, they have by far the most goal attempts. Although I'd say that um. They didn't uh, work Keller Navas as much as they might have done. And yet, every time there was a turnover, uh, PSG's counters were just constructed so well. Or maybe they just, yeah. had, they just had Kylian Mbappe in their side. They just had Kylian Mbappe. Because it was, oh know, my goodness. It felt like um, that kind of superficial control that you're talking about. It, felt, it feels like a good analogy would be having a gun but in a fight with a, a championship knife fighter who's uh, one foot away from you. Do you know Full what I mean? sense of security. Yeah, Yeah, you feel like, I've got a gun. Everything's fine. And then you've lost your kidney. Do you know? And it's already, it's already been sold on the black market before you even, before you even can t take the safety off and take, carry, uh, take over from me. I, well, I, I think it felt like, you know, that, you know that scene in Game of Thrones where uh, the mountain uh, kills the... Um, Hello, Oberon. Exactly. It felt yeah, a little bit like this. Eyes in. Yeah, but you, you, you felt at one point that eventually Bayern, the mountain in this analogy, uh, would eventually just through sheer force of will and size and power, eventually just crush Paris Saint-Germain. But it never came. And, and it just, it always felt throughout the game as if a Bayern goal was five minutes away, five minutes away, five minutes away. And in actual fact, yeah, PSG won the game. PSG should have won, should have scored four because Mbappe had that really, really good chance when he went through. And I, I don't think I can remember 
a moment when PSG, like dancing around like Oberon with his stick, if I remember rightly, was like a sword type. I don't even know how you describe it. You like, murdered her. You killed her children. Exactly. Yeah. That. Um, that's such a good scene. Oh, my there God. Was never I think that's point. called like a glaive, you know, a galvia glaive, that, okay. that weapon. But that's how I would, that's what PSG had. They were just very intricate, very smart runs off the ball, very vertical <clears throat> in the way they progressed it out of their own half. Really good. Um, wait, but but wait, who are you saying PSG were? They were Oberon? Yeah, because Bayern they, Munich... They, didn't by get, they got their head crushed. They didn't yeah, get but, their head no, crushed. No, 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 but they, what I'm saying is <laughs> we might have lost Your analogy doesn't work. You've lost no, it. No, no, no. I have, no, you just failed to Bring follow it back. It. Tighten it up. I think the, so, the analogy works up until the result. No, because I'm so describing the analogy... So what you're saying is Bayern will win the overall... In terms of what I'm expecting to happen. Bayern Munich, in the, the landscape of Europe, European football, very much uh, a mountain-type figure, aren't they? Right. Because you, yeah. always, you always expect them to win eventually. Just because uh-huh. of reputation, size, you know, class of individuals, all those kind of things. Strength of hand. That's what I was waiting for, and it never happened. Oberon won. Did not get a skull crushed. Well, we're basically. we're only halfway through, right? And halfway through in that fight, everyone's excited, and uh, we're listening to him shout about rape and murder, and it's all it feels like justice. And you think, oh, this guy's great. Uh, but maybe that's where we are. Maybe we're only halfway through the tie because there's another game to come and the, the Bayern the Mountain could crush the head of Oberon. <laughs> it's, I mean, listen, this this has been derailed. Uh, this PSG is a looked threatening. analogy for this podcast. I'm going to go back to the plan. Conversely, PSG looked threatening whenever they got the ball, which we've kind of discussed. And Mbappe, we've talked about. Neymar played a part in the third goal. Nice to see him back and doing some stuff. Are they starting to resemble a Pochettino team? Now, I'd ask Alex this, but he watched Porto last night, so we're going to talk to him a lot more later. Uh, So instead, Seb, we'll ask you. And if you can try and put it in more of Game of Thrones language, I'm sure people would like that. No, I'm going to sit that one out. Um, I, I feel like I've... Well avoided. Yeah, I think so. Just sidestep that landmine, possibly. Mm -hmm. No, not yet. Um, I think um, one of the problems for them at the moment is they miss Verratti. I think they look at an entirely different side with Verratti in in there. And I think that um, not that you could, not that it's really right to draw a straight line to Pochettino's old Spurs team, but he needs a kind of, um, he needs a Moussa Dembele type figure. And Verratti, while by no means Mr. Dembele, is probably the closest thing he would have to that, just in terms of the technical ability. So at the moment, I, I thought it was a very, very good counter-attacking performance, but um, it wasn't necessarily one I recognised from, from the Spurs do, days. Do you know, if he was a Game of Thrones character, he would be Stannis, though. Stannis Baratheon. Do you Pochettino? Know yeah, he would. No, he wouldn't. He actually would, because he never wins anything. He really wants to. And he's, uh, he's constantly looking for that other great aid to his side in order that he can win a trophy. And he's got faith. He believes in something uh, which doesn't ever bring him no, what he wants. No, no, no. It's because Stannis is so humorless. <laughs> like, if anything, Pochettino is a, is a Ned Stark. He believes too strongly in, in ideals. He's a little what, bit naive And he dies immediately. Yeah, but I mean, it's still the character still fits. Stannis is a terrible shout. No, I'm just saying, like, Stannis has got his faith in the special thing, which is going to win him the crown. Stannis and it never smile does. For like Stannis five is series, deeply like, morally compromised as well. Yeah, in a way that I don't, I don't feel slandering Pochettino. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, I think won't he's stand for I it, think Joe. he's Stannis. I, won't stand for it. I think he's Stannis. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I like, you know, I like Stannis. I thought I thought he tried to have honor. He was just very confused. <laughs> I mean, really sacrifices his only confused. daughter. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's not a spoiler anymore. It's so long since that episode came out, but that's... it has been a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Kaylor Navas. Oh, greatest goalkeeper of all time. Greatest goalkeeper in the world. Love that guy. Another great game. Alex, uh, when we were talking about him during the game, you mentioned that uh, there's data that describes him as one of the best keepers. There's data that confirms a thing I already thought. What is it? <laughs> Um, Aidan Ray, uh, who's on Twitter as AR Data mm. Analysis, did a um, a tableau uh, back in end of March. And if you look at prevented goals per 90, which is post-shot expected goals minus goals allowed, uh, and then you plot that against save rate, Kayla Navas is in an elite little group, um, along with Oblak, um Martinez at Aston Villa, Henderson kind of creeps in there as well. So as a kind of all-round look at, 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 at certainly at shot-stopping ability, 
it doesn't factor in possession distribution uh, across us, that kind of thing. But but Navas is definitely up there, and I'm pretty sure that Pochettino said this in a in a um, press conference before the last set of Champions League fixtures, um, and, and praised Navas statistically in that way. Um, and yeah, he's he's one of those kind of low key, brilliant players, isn't he? I mean, he's achieved a huge amount in his career. Um, and yet he will not be, this podcast aside, remembered in, in the pantheon of goalkeeping greats, which feels terribly unfair. I think he will. I think if PSG can win the Champions League in the next couple of seasons, I think he, I don't I think think he will. I don't think he's flashy enough. I, I think he's... Uh, there's. Um, I don't know, people... I think from this era, people will remember Ter Stegen, they'll remember Neuer, they'll remember Oblak. I think Navas will they remember will Ter Stegen? Of... Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I barely remember that he exists. But it's not necessarily about what you win. It's about the way that you allow your team to play and the way you change the game. This is why Neuer is the most important goalkeeper probably since, I don't know, maybe Schmeichel, because of what he allowed his team to do. I know he fluffed things yesterday, but Navas is just somebody who is fundamentally excellent at certain facets of goalkeeping. But it's funny though, isn't it? Because he's got like he's a bit shorter than most goalkeepers, so he's got that for you to remember him by. He's got a, a Kalor is one of the great names of all time. <laughs> I was going to say that yeah. Kalor. If I feel like if I'm playing God of War and then a character called Kalor is going to come out and you know beat the heck out of me, uh, and uh, also he's played for some of the world's biggest teams and he's great. It's yeah. I don't know. Well, anyway, we love Caleb. All, now, all of it. those things are true. I just don't. I just don't think he will be looked back on as a really important goalkeeper in the way that maybe he ought to be. No, okay. That's all. Well, listen, we've uh, we've sort of sauntered off track, uh, and and I feel more like I'm involved in the narrative of the the changing hands of Westeros rather than uh, the the Bayern PSG game. So let's let's return. I want to talk about the, the game again. There were lots of missing players on both sides. Uh, Seb, we sort of mentioned this as it relates to, to PSG already, but um, uh, there was no Douglas Costa for Bayern, no Gabri, uh, Gnabry, sorry, no Lewandowski or no Tolisso, plus a few more as well. Um, PSG, no Icardi, no Verratti, as you mentioned, no uh, Paredes, no Kazawa, no Florenzi. Lots of missing players. From Bayern's perspective, though, who did struggle to convert those chances, it felt like Gnabry was a bit of a big miss because Sane didn't quite look the picture last night. Yeah, Sane, Sane looked the picture until it was it was time to produce a final ball. He had a couple of moments where he knifed into the box, where he had a few um, sweet Cruyff turns, which opened up space for like a crossing angle. But it's where Bayern struggled all night. It's just that final decision because you remember like how many times they they cut to the um, cut to the to the byline on the right hand side and, and sort of had yeah. a, a square ball to play and they just couldn't find it. Um, I don't know whether that was about Sane or whether it was just um, a function of how well PSG blocked up that area because I thought they did that really nicely. Um, the goals they... were really funny though because like particularly the Thomas Muller goal. About like watching the replay and thinking like, did he really have that much space? That is, uh, because you're right. Like PSG were were fantastic at, at blocking up their their side of the pitch. It felt like whenever Bayern or the vast majority of shots that Bayern were having were either being blocked or were going off target. And then the two headed goals. Uh, I felt like Chupa Moting had less space, but Thomas Müller had about a meter around him. I mean, I know they call him the space investigator, but it felt like he was investigating a whole galaxy there. Hello? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm sorry, I just can't Is anyone there? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the point was that he had a lot of space and that seemed, seemed to sit strangely in this game uh, where there was very little space for them most of the time. You know what was strange about um, Thomas Miller last night? There, there was a point in the game where he was bleeding profusely from his head without noticing. <laughs> It Is was as for Thomas, like Thomas Muller, Muller a moment as I could possibly imagine. I love that guy. He's great, isn't he? I mean, he's he's horrible, great because he's the per- he's, he's the perfect football character. You're exactly right. He's he's horrible and he's great. When when you know Bayern are sort of when they feel like they're underdogs in these very rare occasions where they do, or where you know you feel that they're pulling together and trying very hard 
to 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 get a goal, get a win. I feel like he's a he exemplifies that sort of attitude and that character, and I and I be excited by him, and I can see him as someone who I would follow in that situation in in real life when they're winning, and he's sort of strutting around and doing dances, and he he then he seems like a the most spoiled boy of all, you know. He's he's, uh, he's perfect he's, character fodder. He strangely he um I think I might have said this before, but he he is a uh, he has an endorsement deal with the uh, furniture store that we're using to um fill up our house. <laughs> And it's on the one hand, like that <laughs> makes gone sense. For the Thomas Muller shares lounge. <laughs> but he, but he, on the, one, <laughs> the lounge set, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. he, on the one hand, makes perfect sense. German international, one World Cups. On the other hand, like he's quite spiky. And if you were, if you were a Bayern Munich fan, you'd love Thomas Muller. If you were yeah. not a Bayern Munich fan, which is probably at least fifty percent of Germany, you'd hate Thomas Muller. Surely, yeah, you don't want spiky just, furniture either. And and like it's kind of, I would I would have imagined. I don't know, like. Manuel Neuer endorsing furniture, possibly, or or someone yeah. like uh, you can catch some Mats winks Hummels, on this maybe. sofa bed. You know, yeah. like Matt Hummels reading in a nice armchair. What what's um, the kind of narrative through line of their advertising? Yeah, yeah, I want to know. It is actually is, is, just, it, is what, he playing on space? Is it like this sofa is much smaller than you think it is, and so there's you, more. You can't just remake my joke, Alex. You have to make your own joke. Well, I, see, I'm sadly for both of you, it's not, it's not, it's not video advertising. It's literally just a brochure with a picture of Thomas Muller on the front with a, a thumbs up gesture. Um, no. So that's as descriptive <laughs> as it gets. But he still feels like a strange. I confirm this furniture is furniture. You know, it yeah. is. Uh, yeah, I'm so not sure strange. that that would persuade me to buy something. Well, it persuaded us, and uh, we are taking delivery of our new sofa and our new footstools in about. What's three the weeks company time. called? Uh, let me ask my wife. Hopefully it comes with a little Muller doll or something. What's the company? What's the furniture company called? Oscar in German. Hofner. Huff, Hofner? Hofner. It's Hofner. Hofner? Hofner. With a, okay. it's an H-O. Hofner. I think it's going to umlaut. Hey, speaking of uh, other companies, I got a question on Twitter for us, which maybe we can answer, but I mainly wanted to read it out because I was so intrigued by the Twitter account that messaged me. Uh, Henson Specialist Cleaning asked, uh, Hey Joe, question for you guys at TIFO. Does the Champions League not have an orange ball for snow conditions? It was difficult to see the ball for long periods in the Munich PSG game, uh, which I thought was an interesting question. But what was more interesting was the Henson Specialist Cleaning page. Because uh, it was, I believe it was Jack that uh, sent me that message. Let me just double check. Oh, it was. Regards, Jack Henson. Uh, so Jack Henson, uh, based in Darlington, England... Uh, we can clean and enhance the look of your floors. Carpets, vinyl, uh, Carndine, I'm not sure what that is, Amtico, ceramics, marble, and uh, Travertine. A listing floors here that I've never even heard of. And the pinned tweet is a lovely um, uh, customer review. Five stars. And the quote from the customer says, Jack's knowledge is extensive and his high level of training gives you reassurance that he can give you real quality. So there you go. That's uh, hensonspecialistcleaning.co.uk. If you live in the area of Darlington and you want any number of these weird alien floors cleaned, but by a specialist, you can contact Jack Henson of Henson Specialist Cleaning. Now, we're not going to answer your question, Jack, because I don't know the answer to it, uh, but uh, do visit Henson Specialist Cleaning, Darlington, UK. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe he can stump up an assist. Nice, nice. Really good. Thank you. Uh, Bayern made two substitutions in the first half last night, both of which, I think, were the results of minor injuries. I don't think it was tactical subs. I haven't double-checked that since the game, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't. But it just made me think, it's not a huge point, and, you know, obviously I'm sure there have been other games and examples where it's been more useful, but the five subs allocation in the Champions League, it makes a huge difference. You know, in, and in last night's game, to me, it kind of felt like a sort of good thing because huge occasion, two huge squads, albeit Bayern didn't have that many players on the bench. Uh, and why should Bayern suffer due to two random injuries early on in a game when it's effing snowing and uh, uh, players are, you know, it would, have, it would have ruined the spectacle. It felt like a good thing. Maybe they should. Maybe they should introduce at this point you know, quarterfinals or, or or knockout rounds only onwards. I mean, five subs because it's generally teams that have that don't. Well, there isn't such a great squad disparity. Well, they're going to have it in the Euros as well, from group stage onwards. They have five substitutions. 
from group stage onwards as in after the group stage? No, no, no. From the group stage beginning. So the whole of the tournament? The whole thing has five subs. <laughs> Why is a weird way of saying it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> from the group stage onwards? Like, it, seemed just more, the it seemed more seismic the way I said it. It seemed more dramatic <laughs> rather really than just confusing. the Euros is going to have five subs. That sounds quite bland. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, okay. Well, that's a little different. Because, I, I mean, you know, where where there are those disparities, it feels like it makes a huge huge difference like in the video we made about it the example i think you used was man city playing burnley or something and it does feel kind of unfair there but when it's Bayern munich and psg actually it doesn't feel that unfair and also it feels fairer on the teams that do are unlucky with injuries um but also I mean, there were quite a number of minor injuries last night. i think psg had made two injury substitutions as well um but you get to see more of the of the squads too i sort of like it is there any call for, for doing it in this sort of scenario i mean Watch the video, right? I mean, <laughs> oh Christ, alive! Uh, okay, we'll be back after this to wait. One more question, Alex. Without watching the first game, uh, can Bayern come back? No. Oh wow! Okay. It depends on how long Lewandowski is out for. If Lewandowski comes back for a, he's not. He's going to miss the second leg. Definitely if second yeah, leg. then yeah. no. What are you saying that Super Moting isn't? Isn't an elite goal scorer? I thought he did okay last night. Uh, yeah, but he's not an elite goal scorer though, is he? I, mean, I he's think a, he's it's a good less player. about that and it's more about the fact that Lewandowski is this kind of talismanic focal point that that would give Bayern the belief that that can happen. They, they need their big players to step up for that yeah. sort of fixture. And if arguably their biggest player is is not available, I think that's a massive problem. I think he's definitely their biggest player. Uh, okay, fine. Well, in which case, we'll be back after this short break to discuss Porto and Chelsea. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Okay, Chelsea are, but for a huge cock-up in the semi-finals of the Champions League. What the hell? What has happened, Alex? This has felt. This has not feel like a season where Chelsea would be in these semi-finals. And if there's a big difference between the quarter-finals and the semi-finals, isn't there? The quarter-finals are just yeah, you make it to the quarter-finals, but yeah, there's always a chance of making it to the quarter-finals. The semi-finals, Chelsea. I think Chelsea have, have sort of quietly, since Tuchel took over, uh, transformed themselves into one of the better teams in Europe. Uh, by, um, I say one of the better. I mean like one of the top four or five teams which bears out where they would finish in the Champions League um, he he instituted a very solid defensive system I think I think some of the surprise at this is possibly reflective of the fact that they shipped five goals to West Bromwich Albion in the weekend preceding this fixture which, it's, it's also just their position in the league I think as well yeah but you know that's I think I think it's an interesting point that 
and I put it in the plan here, the last Chelsea manager to win their first three Champions League games in a row was Roberto Di Matteo, who also came in mid-season and pushed Chelsea forwards to, in that instance, a Champions League win. Avram Grant took over mid-season in 2007-8 and got Chelsea to a Champions League final. And there is something, I think, about knockout football where if a really good manager comes in or a tactically astute manager comes in midway through a season... Galvanise. Well, they're able to manipulate those sort of fixtures and... And, you know, they're not going to recover necessarily league form because league form requires a great degree of momentum and consistency of selection. Whereas when you get into knockout football, you can be more uh, selective and tactics are, I think, a little bit more important. And Tuchel straight away worked on defence and defensive transitions, which is the area that Chelsea were weakest under Frank Lampard. They looked disorganised and chaotic and he's... You know, he's he's brought back in people like Rudiger, he's given them more shape, he's given a greater degree of protection from midfield. And it works really, really well for this kind of uh, campaign. So, yeah, I, I, it, I get why it's surprising, but it's also not surprising. Okay, uh, well, let's talk about the game itself. Mason Mount took his chance very well. Alex, you think he's probably not just a shoe-in for England, but potentially... Uh their most important player. I want to ask you what it is about him that you admire, because to me, he still has that Lampard's favourite boy association, which, if I'm not paying attention, will undercut his quality in my mind's eye. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and and he's also got a very kind of pedestrian and gentle haircut, hasn't he? Which makes yes. him sort of seem good and nice. And, and just a kind of nice name which doesn't yeah, stand out. It's almost like that. There's a there's an inherent softness that comes with that. Possibly that you know he's not going to be this arch competitor, or he's never going to be Thomas Muller. Is what we're saying. Um, I think when I say potentially England's most important player, I'm I'm not talking about scoring goals. Although he did take a, a chance really well against Poland with a, a lovely finish, and his finishing is absolutely superb. It, it's more that. In Mount, Southgate has a player who uh, presses brilliantly, is tactically and positionally very intelligent, can play a variety of different roles, and will basically do exactly what it is you need him to do, and at a much higher level than most players can manage in even one position. And he's still only 22, I think. And I, I you know, I think, yes, England will have... They'll have Harry Kane, who's obviously hugely important. Um, you look at players like, you know, the attacking lineup of Sterling and, and Rashford, and but I think I think Mount's the guy that will make all of that stuff tick and knit England together, whichever kind of formation they use. Um, yeah, he's very very good. Poor old Jack Grealish. Well, uh, something else to say about this game is uh, when Chelsea were less than secure during the game. Even obviously they won two 0 but one of those game goals came. Bit later on, uh, it was interesting to see Alex. You thought the subs that didn't feature, including players like a uh, Tammy Abraham and Callum Hudson Adoy, should we have a think about their future? Yeah, well, Hudson Adoy is someone we've talked about on this pod before because of the the man management thing with Tuchel, you know, yanking him in certain games and so on. Abraham has barely got a look in, and I can understand that that Tuchel is experimenting with Harvards as a false nine. That didn't really work last night. Uh, he has Werner, who can either play through the centre or coming in off the left. That didn't really work last night. And when he has made those sorts of substitutions, he's tended to look to Pulisic to add kind of dynamism cutting in, whereas Hudson-Odoi would give more width and more crossing ability than trying to take players on and get around the outside. And Giroud, again, it's an understandable substitution. You know, Giroud gives something in the air against Pepe. That's really important. Chelsea were generating a few crossing opportunities, but didn't really have anybody in there to compete. And he's super experienced, right? And has scored goals at this level before. Absolutely. And and so I suppose what I'm saying is less about the, you know, the particularly the Giroud substitution made perfect sense under the circumstances. But where does that leave... Tammy Abraham, who, if we go back to last season, was one of the most exciting English prospects in the centre-forward position. 
it feels like the conversation has very much moved on. You know, Chelsea could look to invest heavily in another centre forward in the summer. Um, He's not getting picked in the big games. It, It feels like there's an opportunity for somebody. The only issue, I suppose, is that Chelsea don't have to sell him. So they could ask for quite a significant price, but it wouldn't surprise me, say, we've talked before about this, that, um, you know, with potentially a wide attacking position and a centre forward position opening up at Borussia Dortmund, take the two of them on loan. You know, that's in Chelsea's interests to to have those players playing regularly, uh, to see what they can do. It suits Dortmund because they can lose two very good players and replace them with two very good players. Um, not as good, obviously, but... Well, where else that... would be a fit for Tammy Abraham in, in the Premier League? Because you're right, like he's got that kind of compl- uh, mixture of uh, hasn't quite proved himself yet, but is clearly very, very good and will be expensive. And that's a sort of gamble at the best of times, isn't it? Particularly during this this season with the economic standings. Yeah, Chelsea aren't going to loan him to a, a Liverpool or a Manchester United um, because why would you... You know, why would you send him to a potential title rival? I could see him maybe working at Leicester, for example. I think he, you know, we we talked in the the last pod, said made uh, a point about Leicester needing, you know, options up front, somebody who can sort of work between what Vardy brings and what Iheanacho brings, and and Abraham is is potentially an answer to that. Um, I think he's too good a player to go to most Premier League sides on loan as a kind of you know, a rotation option or something. So it is difficult. It, it, he could well end up going abroad for a season. And I think that might be that might be really interesting and beneficial for him. Likewise, hudson Adoy, I could see doing really well for Dortmund, actually. Okay. Well, that's Chelsea. Uh, congratulations. I'm sure they'll probably make it through to the semi-finals. We can discuss that from Porto's perspective. Now, though, and to say, Alex, you text us after five minutes to say that Porto are doing sexy things. That's what you said. Porto are doing sexy things. And it was at that moment that I knew that Chelsea were going to win 2-0. But <laughs> you insist that Chelsea were a bit lucky to win. You in- absolutely insist that. And because you were the only one of us that watched this game, you I guess we have to kind of believe you. Explain yourself. Uh, well, Chelsea had the lion's share of the possession, but Porto generated more shots, created more chances. They didn't create better chances. So I, it's hard to say. I, I think I think Chelsea 2-0 flattered Chelsea a little bit. And Porto... You said were... they portoed Porto. That was a good... I thought that was good. Yeah. So what I <laughs> what I meant by that was that, that they they sat deep. They controlled the space. They, they negated most of what Porto were able to do. But they did it in a way where they continued to look vulnerable. And Porto's press, certainly in, in the first half, was really, really effective. I mean, they they were going for a man-orientated press on Chelsea's midfield double pivot, hardly giving them any kind of time. Uh, the wide players, particularly on the right-hand side, Corona, was, was dropping back and making a sort of uh, a second right back in a way that actually we've seen um, Spurs do with Bergwijn in front of someone like Aurier. Uh, that did leave Chelsea the right-hand side to, to open up. Otavio was doing it less, but there was a really clear plan from Porto. And I think on about 20, 25 minutes, they had two chances in a row off the same corner. Uh and, and I felt like if they'd scored either one of those, then the game could really have gone very differently because Chelsea stuck at it and they did well. And Mount took his goal superbly um, working through the, the right half space. There was a lovely turn receiving the pass and then a good finish. But those sort of little moments of individual quality aside, um, I thought Porto handled them incredibly well through their tactical setup. And Conceição is... I did get a few messages when I was saying how good Conceição was, people pointing out that if you watch him in um, Liga Nos, then Porto are actually much less impressive. So I wonder if there's something about the way Porto set up against bigger sides where they're compact and they're pressing and they're sort of like a Simeone-Atletico Madrid thing. It's it's better. Um, but he does look like someone who could move on to a bigger job like at Atletico Madrid with that, with that kind of very well-drilled, pressing 4-4-2 
um, you know, exciting players cutting in off the wings. I don't, yeah, I think Porto are basically, th- sorry, Chelsea are basically through, but Porto have given a really, really good account of themselves. Well, I was going to say that, uh, we, we, so we've heard what, what you think about that, Seb. We discounted Porto, base, practically did anyway, after the first leg of their game, uh, their, their two-legged tie against Juve. And of course, they surprised everybody and, and came through. Could they do it again? Is there any chance? No, not not from this position, I don't think. I mean, I think a lot of my good feeling towards Porto comes from a lot of my bad feeling towards Andre Agnelli. <laughs> so right. I don't think it's a pure footballing appreciation. I just think they, they happen to be the... Uh, the slayer of something bad. They stiffed a stiffer. I th- sure. I th- I did think indeed. Chelsea have much less fragility as well. I mean, the only time, apart from those those couple of chances off the corner, I think if you press Chelsea really, really high, and you look to disrupt Mendy, who is a good shot stopper but pretty terrible with the ball at his feet, you can get some joy. But then with Chelsea having the back three, the passing options to him are opened up. It does make it easier. I. I just think Chelsea are too good at controlling games in a way that Juve haven't learned to yet. Um, so that's why. Yeah. But it's sad. I've really enjoyed Porto in the Champions League. I think they've been great. Sure, sure. Okay, well, let's uh, let's mooch on over to uh, discuss uh, Man City Dortmund after this. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, I'm Adam Hurry and Football Clichés is the podcast you never knew you needed. Every week, to quite unnecessary depth, we examine the words, the phrases, the accepted wisdom, the mannerisms, the habits, the gestures, the symbols, the sounds and the smells that everyone takes for granted in football, but which really are the glorious glue that holds it all together. For example, have you ever really listened to the Football League goals roundups? I mean, really listened to them? Because they all sound pretty much like this. Team X went into this game with just one win in their last 13. And when Team Y took the lead inside four minutes at Stadium Z, the home fans were probably starting to fear the worst. But Striker A had other ideas and this game turned on its head in the space of five minutes midway through the second half. First, a smart finish from the edge of the box brought Team X level and he repeated the trick on the hour mark to bring his tally for the season to 22. By now, Team X were in the mood, and although striker A squandered a gilt-edge chance to complete his hat-trick, on-loan Dutchman winger B made it three with a curling effort from long range. Team Y's misery was compounded in stoppage time when midfielder C's late challenge on fullback D saw them reduced to ten men. An afternoon to forget for manager E's men then, but Team X will hope they have finally turned a corner under caretaker boss manager F. Listen to Football Clichés wherever you get your podcasts and also ad-free when you subscribe to The Athletic. Well, that was that. And this is Man City 2, 1 Dortmund. Uh, Foden, of course, won the game with a very late goal after Marco Royce brought Dortmund back into 1-1 in the 84th minute. This one is, theoretically, very much open. Here's a few things about it, because I didn't watch it. It's apparently the first time that City have led a Champions League quarterfinal after the first leg, which is quite something, isn't it? That seems surprising to me. Uh, however, they were lucky to be let off, of course, with the Jude Bellingham's denied first half goal, which I've watched again uh, afterwards, or we watched afterwards and can't understand how it wasn't allowed to be a goal. Uh, they didn't convert their chances to their usual level, and there were a handful of uh, sloppier than usual performances from players like Rodri, Diaz and Cancelo, according to Sam Lee, who I read after the game. He also said it had some of the hallmarks of previous Champions League exits, plus the fact that Dortmund have their away goal and a 1-0 home victory would be enough to proceed. However, it is difficult to see City not scoring in a game of football, but they did keep Holland from scoring, and that's a positive, Seb. Yeah, I mean, he's he's had a little bit of a dip over the last couple of weeks. He wasn't good at the weekend, so it wasn't wholly surprising to see him a little bit, um, little bit quiet here. I, Joe, I can't, I can't get over the. Re- I know we're not this kind of podcast. I just cannot get over the refereeing performance. It was just, yeah. a, it was bizarre. It was I, I, as I said, I didn't see it. I read about it, and it did sound very odd. The the Bellingham goal, like, don't. I didn't the get Be- it the Bellingham goal. I, I, I it, it should have been a goal, yes, but I, I think the, the 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 bigger mystery was the um, the VAR review of the Rodri penalty decision, 
uh, on one look back, it was very obvious that um, that it wasn't a penalty and that Rodri had thrown himself over and held his face for goodness knows why. I, I don't know. But it, it took the referee about 15 views of that replay to make up his mind about that. And I, I just want to know what he was, A, thinking and B, saying to his assistants. It was just, I don't know, it was it everything that's... It wasn't uh, one of the common ones, was he? It was very, very strange. It was very, very strange. I, I just don't know how a, a referee gets that level of the game. Um, yeah. Odd yeah. One. Well, anyway, one. there we go. Referee. We'll be back after some adverts for TalkSport. Okay, lastly now, before we leave you, uh, Kevin De Bruyne this week signed a two-year extension, which will keep him at City until uh, 2025. One interesting aspect of this, uh, Sam Lee wrote about it, and uh, Alex, I thought you'd like this if you hadn't heard of it already. In recent months, uh, he, as in De Bruyne, commissioned a team of data analysts to study almost every relevant aspect of his contribution to the team and the team's continued chances of success. He wanted information on his own performances and impact on the team, but also a prediction on the squad's ability to continue challenging for top honours based on their age and qualities, and how City's big rivals at home and abroad stack up. The results convinced him that he's an integral part of the team, uh, but also that there is nowhere that he would rather be, which I just found really interesting because not only... He appeared to be uh, commissioning that study for uh, several different reasons at once. Seems seems like a smart guy uh, to show his numbers to literally show how important he is to the team to say this is why you need to pay me more than anybody else or however much he is getting paid but also to have an independent review of whether he would be getting a greater amount of success elsewhere i just thought it was a really interesting approach to re-signing and also sam wright wrote within the piece as well uh, he made it very clear that it didn't mean that there was any kind of uh, there was ever really any chance that he wasn't going to sign or that there was any uh, uh, animus uh, in the situation it was just a sort of run-of-the-mill thing to do or is considered to, to, to be rather ordinary but pretty inventive yeah we had a previous instance with memphis Depay who who conducted statistical analysis to work out which team he would best fit at and the, the answer was leon apparently which is why he went there i think this is something that we will see footballers do increasingly i think it's really interesting to do it around contract negotiations because like you say it does to a degree go to demonstrate his value to the club. Um, De Bruyne is clearly a very thoughtful footballer. And we we had that video where we we had some audio clips of him uh, discussing his position. And he's clearly somebody who thinks a lot about not just his own individual performance, but what he brings to the team and the areas in which he does that and the focus of the various aspects. Um, and so mining into data or getting somebody else to do that for you just to kind of really stack up what he probably already instinctively knows uh, is is very, very cool. But I, I think... You can sit down at that table with a big folder that says, here's the evidence of everything I'm about to tell you. You know, this, this yeah. is why I deserve this much money. I think it's a great I, idea. I, think, I wish I, I could hire true. an external business analyst to come and come and give me a thing. Do you know what I mean? When you ask for a pay rise at your work, here's what you should tell them, you know? It doesn't, yeah, but I guess I, it doesn't work in the same way. I think it's going to. I think it's going to be more important for players who. I mean, let's be honest. De Bruyne wasn't going to go anywhere else. I'm sure Sam's right about that. Sure. But for players who are in a position where they need to uh, push themselves forward, I know. I know that there are player agencies, for example, that work with data analysis to 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 try and put their players forwards to teams. But I think players are going to increasingly, with the availability of this stuff and the large number of people who can produce good data analysis, good visualizations, um, they're going to start taking those matters into their own hands and saying, look, you should be using me here. Or uh, it's, And it can only be a good thing for players because it gives them a greater degree of agency. It allows them to make better choices about where they go. You know, a footballer's career is very short um, and you don't want to be idling away at a club that doesn't want to use you properly or in a way that best suits you. Uh, and the more that players can work on avoiding that, uh, the, the better it will be for football in general, I think. Well, there we go. Uh, that is uh, the end of today's podcast. No Joes and Facts uh, quotes. Joes and Facts. Joes, Quotes and Facts database. None of that. Uh, I've decided now to officially make that only a Tuesday podcast thing once a week. 
because, uh, as I said before, I kind of started it as a joke. I didn't expect it to pick up any pace, and I've really, really created a rod for my own back. So I'm going to half the size of that rod now, so it'll be a little bit more comfortable when I'm trying to sleep. Uh, so Seb Stafford Bloor, thanks to you. Thank you very much, Joe Devine. Dankeschön. Bitte. Yeah, okay, very informal. Alex Stewart, thank you to you. Thanks, Joe. Uh, of course, thanks as always to producer Adonis and uh, to you, the kind listener, the favoured listener, the good person. Don't forget to uh, check out uh, Henson Specialist Cleaning uh, at Henson Cleaning on Twitter uh, for Darlington residents in the local area. And we will be back uh, next week uh, with more stuff on whatever's happened. Au revoir! The Athletic.